Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we're discussing the Next Generation first season episode, The Arsenal of Freedom. So I think I've shared this story before, but this was the first episode of Star Trek that I ever watched properly. Precious. I was out riding my bike, it was a summer evening, and I came in and my parents were watching The Next Generation, and I think I got in just as Picard and Beverly were running from the drones, and I was like, oh, that lady has red hair, and I finally understand what writers mean in books when they talk about high cheekbones. I'm going to stick around. Nice. Yeah, yeah, really worked out for me, as you can see. (laughs) But I was surprised watching this episode again it's quite good like that's what i was gonna say yeah for a first season episode particularly yeah it's got some really clumsy writing like there's a point where the characters are reporting to the bridge what the audience has just watched happen like they're showing and telling like they don't trust the special effects to tell the story but you know taken as a product of its time i think it really really stands up Considering how bad some of the first season episodes of Next Generation are. Right. <laughs> it was it was a breath of fresh air. Yes. Like, it wasn't great <laughs> or anything, but it was solid. Yeah, no one is going to say this is one of the great episodes of TNG, but there are much, much worse episodes to spend 45 minutes with. What I noticed was how good it was as an ensemble piece. Yeah! that actually everybody got to do something. I was going to not, say the not same Wesley. thing. He wasn't in it, but other than Wesley. <laughs> Sometimes the key to a great ensemble piece is just letting one member of the ensemble step out and make room for everyone else. This stands up for me, maybe not as the best of Next Generation, but if you imagine season one of TNG as season four of TOS, looking at it in that light, it's really good. Yeah, I agree. So I guess we should do a, like, a little rundown of what happens in this episode, just in case other people have also forgotten <laughs> what happens in this episode, because I will admit, I was surprised by at least 80% of what happened in this episode. I remembered Picard and Crusher in the hole. Yes. And that's about it. <laughs> Tasha and Riker running around and shooting things. <laughs> Those were my two memories of this episode. (laughs) As I watched it, I was like, oh yeah, then this, then this, then this, and I remember really liking this. But mostly what I remembered before I rewatched it was Picard and Crusher in the hole and the extremely stagey set design. Yes, it's (laughs) it's actually very... Oh, okay, we, we can talk about production design in a minute, but the synopsis is... The Enterprise goes to a planet that has all everyone on it has has disappeared or died. All of the life signs are gone on the planet, including the last Federation ship that went to check out the planet, which conveniently was captained by Riker's old friend. Yes. And the planet is notorious as the home of a culture of arms dealers. Right. Yeah. It's one of those, oh, right, there are weapons Mm. manufacturers in Star Trek. (laughs) Huh. But Annika, that's that's not very utopian. It's not real Star Trek. Well, the the first season of TNG, I think uh, describing it as the fourth season of TOS is actually very apt. It has a lot in common with some TOS storylines of Mm. weapons of mass destruction and how our crew have to figure out how to outsmart the natives Mm. in order to stop that from attacking them and saving the natives from themselves. They kind of fail here, but you know, they they were too late. That comes (laughs) up a lot in season one. It's one of the problems with the season. And it's also that sense of space being scary and full of the unknown. You know, these arms dealers that we've never heard of and this terrible war that we never hear of again. 
it gives you a sense of space being really, really big. Whereas I think by the end of TNG, we really knew every centimetre of the Alpha Quadrant, and that was actually mm. a problem. Yeah, I can see that. And I did like that these arms dealers had no morals mm-hmm. <laughs> and and were selling to both sides. Yes. And did not care. They were pure capitalists. And I also liked how much Patrick Stewart as Captain Picard rolled his eyes throughout the episode. Oh, 100%. Just just to finish our synopsis of the episode, while the away team deals with the drones on the planet, Geordie in command of the Enterprise has to deal with the drone in space and also with the worst chief engineer the Enterprise ever has. And Picard and Crusher uh, fall into an old disused bunker and Crusher is seriously injured and a tiny shipper was born. It is very shippy. All of the first season is very shippy for them, to Mm. be honest. Mm. From the beginning, they are clearly a ship. I wrote something really interesting about that, which I'll get to at the end. I want to say that I dinged the design of the salesman, the holographic salesman for having stereotypically Jewish features and then I ran this by a friend of mine who is Jewish basically going is it possible that I in fact am the one being stereotypical and she was like "Mm, actually Vincent Schiaparelli made his whole career playing charming skeezy types so is this typecasting is it an ethnic stereotype I am reluctant to give Gene Roddenberry the benefit of the doubt at any time, but I am willing to say that there was probably even less intentional anti-Semitism here than with the Ferengi. However, he is also wearing a Chinese traditional dress, a Qi Pao, and this was made at the time of the rise of China as a manufacturing centre, and that is pretty gross. He's the subway ghost in Ghost, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's all I could see. <laughs> I I had read your comments before I rewatched the episode, and so I was looking for this the stereotypically Jewish features and the Chinese costume, and it's absolutely there. The Chinese costume, it's also very, it's like you know fake future. Yes, as yes. well. It's very silver. It's it's sort of that like Phantom Menace thing where oh well, we can wear Asian clothes mm. and that will be futuristic and it's like that's not how that works <laughs> but okay his outfit also looks very cheap like yes. the production values were not there yes and I was not watching this on a whiz bang high definition TV I was watching it on Netflix on my monitor. I was watching it on a whiz bang high definition TV and I'm sorry. not good. No. Not good. <laughs> Don't do not suggest. Do not recommend. <laughs> but my thing was that there's like the aesthetic of the salesman, but then literally all his talking points are straight up out of the NRA. Yeah. It is super cowboy American sales yes. pitch. And yuck. It's so interesting to me that the Star Trek stereotype of the arms dealer is this kind of oily, ingratiating figure who seems superficially sophisticated when your actual arms dealers in real life are either faceless corporations like Raytheon or your redneck at the gun show. It's very interesting. It's I can see this thing. like that's where I do see the utopian future mm. because we are we are not supposed to like them. No, no. <laughs> All of Minos is a bad planet and <laughs> they don't even really spend a lot of time being sad that literally everyone on the planet has died. Yeah, because they were a, a bad planet full of bad people, <laughs> but they again are literally corporate arms dealers <laughs> <laughs> who sell to the highest bidder in order to, you know, make as much profit as possible, and then their weapons of mass destruction destroy them. It is very anti-capitalist utopian future. Yes. From that perspective. 
And season one of TNG is really overt in its anti-capitalism, from the Ferengi to this episode to the neutral zone and the cryogenically frozen 20th century Wall Street trader. If there is a theme for season one of The Next Generation, it's that capitalism is bad, actually. Bad. Which is hilarious because... Gene Ratterer was totally into it. 100%. It's also that, when did Star Trek get woke? In this case, in 1987. Right. Very, very. Because no culture is a monolith, I choose to believe that there are Minosians who were basically pacifists, who took off and, you know, have their own society where they have not destroyed themselves, and maybe some ran away and joined Starfleet. So I like to think that there are... Minosian people out there, but that specific part of the culture destroyed itself. I just think the idea of a full-scale genocide, even a self-genocide, is really sad. It's pretty horrible. Yeah. And I, I did want to mention that they said we're in orbit around the planet of Minos, the planet of arms dealers, and mm. I was, wait a minute, I have to go look up that Greek myth <laughs> because I, I vaguely know it but I just want to see how well it fits. And it fits very well. He's a son of Zeus and some oh, random woman. Of course. And, and so he's in charge of the island and he forces the king to choose 14 kids, seven boys and seven girls, mm. to enter the labyrinth and basically become minotaur food. Right, like, yes. You know, choose which members of your next generation you're going to feed to the Minotaur. The planet is definitely a labyrinth. Yes. And it's definitely about going up against a monster that is stronger than it should be because it's a it's like a god-level monster. And it's eaten the future of this world. And it's eaten the whole future yeah. of the world. So. I do enjoy the Roddenberry era thing of just going straight to classic mythology and or Shakespeare. Absolutely. I also really liked the planet. It was so green. Yes. And it just had this really natural jungle type aesthetic, which was completely in opposition to the you know, we're, we're selling weapons. Yeah. I mean, obviously they were like in, they were supposed to be in the labyrinth mm. where it was, it was a maze and it was very naturalistic and it was to show off the weapons and how they can work. You know, there's sort of like a, a weird Vietnam thing going on, but it was very green and very pretty both in space and as much as it could be, again, production values, but I liked the attempt. <laughs> Honestly, I liked the idea that you could take this script and do it on a stage. Since, since we watched Prodigy and since I thought more about your introduction to Star Trek, I have come to have a new appreciation for the cheaper production design of some mm. episodes. And I will say that it looks like they put all their money into designing the weapon, which I believe was a pantyhose container and some tubing. And it looked great. It was so clever. I mean, it kind of looked like a vibrator to me. <laughs> okay. uh, yes. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. So let's talk about the weapon mm. because my note here is that Every science fiction property has a story about the AI who are going to take over the world and destroy all the humans. Mm -hmm. And that's explicitly what happens here. And yet, we are creating smarter <laughs> and smarter AI to do more and more things. It's like we don't care. It's like we're asking them to take over the world and destroy all of us. Yeah, I sort of did a deep dive into the long-termism guys who, you know, like Elon Musk and all of that and their philosophy. And then I was like, this is gross. I'm not going to read more about this. But there is definitely an idea that the singularity is not something to fear because we can enslave it, which is troubling. I would cynically say that, that the Elon Musks of the world want the AI to kill off all the rest of us. Mm. And then there would be just them and the AI, and then they would enslave the AI. Yes, because we already know that Elon Musk doesn't understand the value of having someone to clean your toilets. Right. 
For me, the thing about the weapon, the Echo Papa 67, which is a great name, is it's so Borg-like in its behaviour. It learns and it evolves and every 12 mm. minutes it brings out an upgrade mm -hmm. that makes it better. That is, ironically, a great foreshadowing of genuine technological developments with the iPhone and so forth. But also, I wonder if this was part of the inspiration for the Borg. Mm -hmm. You can't reason with it, but it's always improving itself and learning from you. And you mentioned the episode with the Wall Street guy. Mm. And that is also an episode that foreshadows the Borg. Yeah. And the Borg do appear in season two. So I do think that that all of this is related. Yes. I went to check and the guy who wrote this episode also wrote Data Law, but didn't stick around much after that. So he had nothing to do with the Borg as a concept, but I feel like the ideas were floating around and being refined in the writer's room as they went through executive producers the way the Enterprise was going through chief engineers. I love that the guy who wrote this episode, which was your first experience with The Next Generation, mm. also wrote Data Lore. I know! My first experience with The Next Generation, and also that we both started not at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's really wonderful. Yes. Little coincidence. We should go I back and do data law sometime. Bless. Yes. Yes, definitely. We're just going to do all of the, you know, seminal episodes <laughs> for us. But also, both are really good Beverly episodes. Exactly. And she's having a renaissance, finally. Mm. Mm. Despite the fact that I'm not going to watch season three of Picard, I am really happy that she's having a renaissance and I hope, he, I hope it's good enough and is not going to trigger me so that I can later watch it. Yeah. Once you know everything. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I would that. not have been affected so badly by season two if I had known in advance how it was going to play out. Yes. Even though we guessed. We really guessed. I guess it was good storytelling, just a bad story. No, I'm going to say it was a bad story and it was badly told. <laughs> I noticed that Women of Warp have published an essay about how Agnes and the Borg Queen are an abusive relationship. And I was like, oh my god, that is so true. This is just domestic mm -hmm. abuse all the way down. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Star Trek's The Next Generation Season 1. I love this list of things you forgot about TNG. <laughs> that Riker, the ambitious one, was offered command of the Drake and turned it down to be second in command of the Enterprise. Which I'm sure he sees as ambitious because he's, he's like, I want to be captain of the Enterprise or nothing. Mm -hmm. But throughout these seven years, it's really about what is ambition, what is his long-term goal, what is really important to him. Mm. And... I like that as early as the first season, that was actually a part of his character. And then he didn't transform from this, like, I'm the go-getter ambitious one, that, that he actually was always someone who was holding back a little bit. Yeah, not only in terms of having a longer-term plan than simply becoming a captain in his 30s, mm -hmm. but also the sense that on some level he feels like he's not ready for it. Yeah. He wants the captaincy, but he wants to be ready for the captaincy. Yeah, I think that also he is actually a really good first officer, mm. and specifically for Picard. Yes. So I think that it absolutely is a learning experience for him that he will be a better captain because of this experience. And it actually takes a lot of, like, more maturity than I give Riker credit for. Mm. <laughs> to know that and i think i'm a little harsh <laughs> on on young riker because again i forget i forget that in these early seasons he is still the same character yeah and i think of him as very rash and that's not actually fair picard is more rash oh yeah 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 picard is left alone on the bridge for like an hour before he decides to beam down to the planet this is what happens when you leave picard unsupervised yeah, like, I cannot, again, I had your notes in mind already. And so I was like, oh, silly Picard. And I knew that, obviously, I knew that he took Beverly because I know that they end up in the hole. Mm. But it's like, it's purposefully a small team of just Riker, the first officer, mm -hmm. Tasha Yar, the chief of security, 
and Data, the operations officer mm. and third in command. Yes. <laughs> they beam down by themselves. Mm-hmm. And then when Riker gets in trouble, Picard, captain yeah, of the entire yeah. ship, and, you know, it's the flagship of the fleet, so actually all of the fleet, mm-hmm. that captain, and he takes his chief medical officer. <laughs> so it's like, all right, we're going to have five senior officers, the three top in command, plus the doctor, who is the <laughs> next highest rank are all going to go down to the planet that we know literally destroyed all of the people on the planet <laughs> and an entire starship. Mm. They don't even think to take Worf, who is genuinely a junior officer at this time. They leave Geordi in charge. He's like a lieutenant junior grade. He's great. He totally does really well. But it's a little bit weird. <laughs> yes, and this is why... Picard wanted Riker to be his first officer because he knew Riker would stop him from doing this sort of thing. (laughs) These really poor decisions. The second Riker is incapacitated, Picard's like, welp, pulls down shirt, time to save the day. (laughs) I'm going to swash some buckles. And he immediately gets himself and Beverly stuck in a hole. (laughs) Immediately. I know so great i just want to highlight like when gates mcfadden falls a you can tell that this is a woman who has studied like clowning and movement and theater but also the way she throws her tricorder and phaser away it's clearly someone has told her do not damage these valuable props then do your fall which is great it's like a cartoon flail I absolutely love the fall. It is so funny. Everyone should go watch just that little, like, attack and the two of them swaying back and forth and then falling into the hole. It is hilarious. It is so much fun. It is completely undignified and ridiculous. And as a person who, like, falls down a lot in her day-to-day life, rip my ankles, it is completely true to life. And then they fall, like, 12 metres into this cave. And Beverly (laughs) is flat out on the ground. Yeah. She broke her arm and her leg and is, like, stabbed in the middle Mm. and is unable to move or function. Picard, fine. Not a scratch. Nothing. Totally fine. I guess he landed on top of her. I guess. Also, the first thing he does is, like, move her spine. And I'm like, buddy, can we... Overall, his first aid skills are pretty good. But, like, dude, come on. I like when he apologizes for ripping her jacket. We have replicators. I don't care that you're (laughs) going to rip my jacket in order to, like, literally make a splint for me. Do that. I thought he was apologising for getting into her personal space and, and, like, touching her clothing. Oh, okay. I guess that's a little more gentlemanly. Yeah. But since he... I mean, they're very close (laughs) in this episode. Yes. yes. He's definitely not taking advantage of the situation. (laughs) No, and I read on Memory Alpha that the original version of this script had Picard injured and Beverly caring for him, and it was very overtly romantic. And Gene Roddenberry killed that because he did not want the level of character development that was required for an on-screen romance. So, thanks, Gene. But I like it better that Beverly is hurt. Absolutely. And Picard is, because she's actually directing him Mm. to do everything so she's in control and taking care of herself but but he is like the actual catalyst and he is good at first aid and he is good at like i it's sort of the one part where i was really shaking my head is when he tells her to keep up her part and stay awake Mm -hmm. and i'm like dude you're you're gonna be like five feet away you can still continue having this conversation yeah come on buddy come on there is no reason that she has to force herself to stay awake. In terms of hurt comfort, this was really formative for me and taught me that I love it when my favourite character is in danger or injured. Beverly's injuries don't really seem that terrible. She seems to have a compound fracture of her arm and cuts on her legs and she's losing a lot of blood. But of course, even minor injuries like that, if you leave them untreated, will 
get you in the end. She definitely has a concussion. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. There's definitely internal bleeding in the brain and so forth. The concussion and the internal bleeding are the actual big problems. Like, what mm. she's being treated for are not the, mm. the big problems. The issue is we have to get her up into the ship where we can monitor her and figure out exactly what's wrong with her. Right. Like, this would take half an hour to fix if she was on the Enterprise. Alas. Right. She's in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> But she's in a hole with magic roots. Okay, okay, this has bugged me since I was a child. But just because the roots on Arveda 3 have medicinal properties does not mean that the roots on Minos have the same medicinal yeah. properties. You really have to wave a lot of disbelief for this particular... I, I love all of the character building yes. around this story of... Beverly's tragic childhood and Arveda 3, which, you know, some horrible disaster befell. And it's unclear whether her parents died because of this disaster or, mm. you know, separately from this disaster. But she lived through it with her grandmother who raised her. Mm -hmm. And her grandmother was sort of a herbalist type person who knew all of the medicine of ancient plants in in you know i'm sure she also knew something about modern medicine but she wasn't a doctor the way that beverly is now. yeah yeah all of that is great but it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever <laughs> that a completely different planet in a completely different part of space has roots that because they taste a little bitter are definitely going to like have the same medicinal properties yeah also as a child you're really taught not to put strange vegetation in your mouth like come on guys come on <laughs> taste it but don't swallow it it's like that's not gonna save you if it's actually poison no and it's funny because they did so well with the technology side of the science fiction in this episode but the I guess xenobotany no one really thought about they did not think about it because they were they were focused on the the story which again I love the story but it it doesn't it doesn't hold up to scrutiny no no and, and look I have been thinking about this since I was a child and that is probably a level of attention that they were not intending anyone to pay absolutely right yeah, I love the bit where Beverly says there's a lot you don't know about me because it's so, it's kind of flirty, even though she mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. badly injured and has a concussion. And it made me think of the promos for Picard season three and how we're finally going to learn all of Beverly's so quote unquote <laughs> secrets. All of Beverly's secrets that she's had all along and we just didn't learn about them because we've literally never put a spotlight on her ever. Right. Yeah. I have questions, but... Honestly, if they want to pay off that line from season one of The Next Generation, I will respect that deeply. I know that you have a lot of mixed feelings <laughs> about season three. I'm super looking forward to learning new things about Beverly and then, you know, going backwards and seeing how it was absolutely foreshadowed in all of these <laughs> other episodes. Like, I cannot wait to force my mind to do amazing gymnastics to make it all make sense. It's going to be great. I can't wait for you to do that and then tell me about it. I watch terrible television, so you don't have to. Thank you for your service. Let's talk about how Tasha Yar, who is completely written off as, as you've noted here, useless, useless. and not as good a security chief as Worf, even though Worf is terrible at his job. She's really good here. She's really good from the beginning. She is the one pointing out we should not send a lot of people down to this incredibly dangerous planet. She's the one who is figuring out how to defeat the drones. And her interactions with Data, when you consider their personal connection, they're so professional. It's painful to watch. And I love that. I am upset. Honestly, about how good she is in this episode because she leaves in like two episodes, <laughs> which to me is like so she knew she was leaving. Like they were already having a conversation, or possibly it was a done deal at this point. And I am sad that mm. they didn't give her this stuff to do until she was already having a conversation about leaving. I think it's also that 
for the whole cast, really, it took most of the season to figure out how to write these characters. And Denise Crosby simply wasn't willing to, and didn't have to, wait around for right. the work to click. Yeah, I'm not angry at Denise Crosby for being upset that she did, like, you know, 18 episodes of a series mm. and never got to do anything. Mm. It's completely reasonable for her to be like, this isn't working for me. Like, that's fair. Yeah. And Tasha got some of the worst writing of the whole ensemble early on. She got Code of Honor. She got the scene where Tasha tries to seduce Picard in Hide and Q. Like, I too would be writing my resignation letter. Right. I'm just, as always, sad because you can see the potential. Yeah. I get sad when I, I want more of something that is good. Yeah. Because I'm the audience. I'm I'm not having to play this trash. <laughs> so from my perspective, I'm willing to wait for it to get good. And so I get sad when I start it starts to get good and then they get taken away. And this happens to me a lot. Mm. Most of my favorite characters are the ones who are worst written, who have the worst storylines, <laughs> and who the writers don't even know what to do with, and so they make up random plots that serve everyone else's story instead of their own. Mm. Because, I don't know, I just, I see all of the potential in those characters. I see that those people could be so much more if they put the effort of avoiding telling their story <laughs> into telling their story. Yes, and I imagine how Tasha would have evolved if she had stayed with the series and, like, hit season three or four, you know, the peaks. Imagine the best mm -hmm. of both worlds with Tasha Yar and Commander Shelby. Oh, my God. I ship it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Do you think they could have been at the Academy together? Like, Tasha's oh. pretty young, but I reckon they could have overlapped. I reckon they dated. Tasha's young, but she's also an overachiever she was found when she was 15 or whatever on rafe planet so i can see her being at the academy with people who are older than her I yeah guess, is what i'm saying because of her particular terrible circumstance pushing her way into the upperclassmen study groups right. and stuff yep. exactly yep. exactly okay. to prove herself yeah yeah okay i love it i ship it let's go okay i want to say what a great episode this is speaking of characters they never knew what to do with for Deanna Troy yes amazing yeah first we have the beginning of the episode where they're talking about the Drake and Captain Rice and this is such an early TNG thing where you have the three characters in the horseshoe basically having a nice chat Exposition. about what they're doing even though again an entire planet and an entire starship has disappeared. But we're going to, like, pause we're gonna and chill. talk about how it relates to us, yeah. personally. Yeah. So Riker's <laughs> reminiscing about his Academy boyfriend, I mean roommate, and Deanna's like, hmm, and how would you say he dealt with stress? I feel like this whole episode, someone in the writer's room had heard of this new thing called workplace stress, and that was they were like, that's what Deanna does. That's what her work is. But it was so good because she yes. never once did the whole, I sense no, something is no. wrong. Like, it was entirely about her actual counselor skills and not her empathy. And she did so well. She did the scene with Jordy mm. for both of them is so good. Well, first of all, before Picard beams down, she is the one who's like, no, no, you're not. And obviously Picard brushes her off, but I think we forget that Deanna was that voice of not just reason, but authority. And right. then she single-handedly invents the stopping in the middle of a crisis to talk about your feelings scene. That we spent all of Discovery Season 4 making fun of. And I'm sorry, that is copyright Deanna <laughs> Troy, and we have to respect it. But I really liked that scene with Geordie, because one, she's checking in on his emotional state and confirming that he is okay as an inexperienced leader, and then she's like, and this is what your crew needs. And I guess here, this is where her empathy comes in, but it's not just empathy, it's observation and insight and, you know, knowing how people work. Your Battle Bridge crew are incredibly young and inexperienced, and they need you. It's so good because it sets Jordy up as an authority. Yes. And it has her reinforcing 
his instincts yes and he, and that he is a good leader mm. because we'll talk about him in a minute but logan spends the entire episode trying to knock Jordy down yeah and so it's really affirming that deanna says like that right that she checks in and he's like i know you're gonna tell me i'm i'm not doing this well and i don't know how to handle it and she's like no you're doing great yeah <laughs> you know that's not what I'm here to talk about at all. And then, you know, gives him advice on how to move forward with his crew. And I just, I loved that for both characters because we, it's upsetting actually Mm -hmm. that we don't get more of that when it's being well-written. Yeah. And, you know, we see the Picard management tips on Twitter and that's always great. But here it's Deanna giving the really good advice. You believe in the people working with you, but you need to communicate that to them so that they know because they may not believe in themselves. I think if you're ever in a position of authority over someone, whether that's in the workplace or anywhere, that's a really good piece of advice. And then you contrast that with like when Deanna ends up in charge mm. and she's not good at it, which is not like, I'm not saying that that's bad storytelling for her because it actually is good mm. to see flaws in characters. And, you know, Deanna deserves to be a fully rounded character and she absolutely, you know, she does step up mm. eventually and like learns from all of that. But it's just interesting to think about she doesn't just do this for Jordy. Like in other episodes, she absolutely does it for Picard. She does it for Riker. She would make a really good first officer. Yes. Like talk about people who would be a good first officer. Deanna is absolutely that person who can help the other person be the best leader that mm. that they possibly can be. Mm. And it's interesting that you brought up disaster because I was reminded of that episode too, which kind of puts Ensign Rowe in the Lieutenant Logan role mm. of doubting and undermining and disbelieving. But I don't hate Rowe the way I hate Logan. And that's partially because, you know, we already know her from other episodes. We know that she's not just the person who only exists to be the doubter. But also Logan is so unpleasant to Geordie. And his insistence that Geordie is not entitled to be a leader, it's probably not intended as such, but it comes across as pure racism. That's what I was going to say. The optics are really, really bad for Logan. He comes off as the most privileged, entitled, obnoxious white man yeah who thinks that he can just show up on the bridge and everyone will immediately defer to him because he's that guy yeah yeah when Jordy is completely correct that picard put him in charge yes if picard wanted logan in charge he would have put logan in charge he's the captain the thing is of the bridge crew at that time the only other white man is young ensign solace who is very very inexperienced otherwise it's Worf, it's Deanna, it's Ensign Sue. Right. Yeah. And Logan, exactly. He walks on board and he's like, I am the alpha male Mm. white guy who's going to take over because that's my position. Yes. And everyone else is like, no. And he takes that very poorly. Yeah. And it's like, buddy, your position is chief engineer. What are you even doing on the bridge? Go back to engineering. As chief engineer, Geordi never turns up on the bridge to tell whoever's been left in command that he should be doing that job. Did Picard entrust Geordi because he saw something in him and believed that he would be a good leader? Or did Picard leave Geordi in charge because he was there? (laughs) I wonder. I just don't know. Because it's like this weird... Again, I don't think Picard understood the danger of the situation, which is completely inexplicable to me because he is in his 40s and has been a captain (laughs) for like 20 years and has already lost his ship once. He should know that going on to a proven hostile planet that has eaten an entire population and a starship and leaving the lieutenant junior grade pilot in Mm. charge is like not the best idea it works out really well for him (laughs) but it seems completely ridiculous from a leadership standpoint i think the thing about picard is one of his besetting flaws is that he is really terrible at personal risk assessment 
and mm-hmm. that's how he got stabbed through the heart as a young man mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. why he's still putting himself into dangerous situations and he knows himself enough that he has chosen Riker as his first mm. officer to minimise that maybe that was the role Jack Crusher had when he was alive, that's why they were such good friends, but left to his own devices, Picard doesn't necessarily make good choices for his own personal safety but mm. I do think that he chose Geordie over for example Worf because he believed that Geordie was up to the job and would do <laughs> do it well no Worf, that would have been really really bad like no it's not until Deep Space Nine that, that Worf is allowed to be in charge of right. anything. We've talked about this before. Worf is, like, fresh out of the Academy. Mm. He is, like, a 17-year-old Klingon. Mm. Don't put that guy in charge. <laughs> That's a bad idea. I mean, Klingons do seem to age very, very fast. For all we know, he is actually 17. But, yeah, I'm saying. Like, he, yeah. he really comes off as, like, the youngest person in the crew, for sure. Mm. Even and younger than Wesley inex- sometimes. Inexperienced, and yet he completely has the confidence, mm. like, overconfidence, mm. which, again, of a 17-year-old boy. Mm. Like, and a very physically the- strong 17-year-old boy. Yeah. But also, right. I just think Geordie has seniority. I feel like Geordie has been a lieutenant junior grade for a while and is on the edge of being ready for promotion, and Worf has only had that rank briefly. Can we talk about Ensign Sue? Because I love her. Sure. I know. I didn't know. I remembered that her first name was Leanne, but I did, <laughs> and I love her. The actress went that. on to play the love interest of the first captain on Babylon 5, and it was a really terribly written role, and she wasn't very good at it. But I think that was the writing, because I loved her here. If they wanted to give her a whole spin-off, I will watch it. I wanted to point out here... That another that thing that something that we don't complain about, but a complaint that I hear often about Discovery is that they quote unquote don't give the bridge crew enough characterization. Mm. And I just, you know, once again want to take this opportunity to point out that that is not in any way unique to Discovery, mm-hmm. that every Star Trek has had this issue. Like, literally all of them. As far back as the original series, like, I'm sorry, if you can watch the original series and think that Chekhov and Uhura and Sulu get a lot of characterization (laughs) in their, like, you know, 30 minutes total of screen time, Mm. I don't know what you're smoking. We love those characters, but we did that. The audience made those characters great. The tie-in writers, the actors coming back over and over again Mm. and, you know, it becoming 50 years of characterization, which is still 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. But we did that. Mm. The actual scripts and stories of TOS did not. They didn't care about any of those characters. And here, like, honestly, Ensign Sue and Solus get something to do. They make themselves known as mm. much as, say, a Detmer and an Owosukun. And that's a good thing. I don't think that there's anything bad about having these interesting characters who maybe are only in, you know, a handful of episodes or even just one. They're still interesting. I mean, you just mentioned Ensign Rowe. She's only in like eight episodes. Yeah. But I love her. She's my favorite TNG character. And the thing is, not every random background character can be a Miles O'Brien. Exactly. It's amazing the amount of depth and time that that O'Brien got, but he is an outlier and should not be counted. And I think Ayala, who is in nearly every episode of Voyager and has like two lines of dialogue, is... Right. Like, you compare the Discovery bridge crew to Ayala, and they're doing right. great. They're getting the same amount of characterization as Ensign Sue, which is fine. We should continue doing what the audience has done all along, mm. which is, I mean, Ayala, no characterization nope. on the show. 500 fanfics. <laughs> mm-hmm. People love that guy. <laughs> I mean... And so, you know, it's fine we create the universe we want right yes and i really love revisiting this early stage of next generation at that time when they were finding their feet and it was getting to be more confident and going oh yeah this is actually really solid 
They didn't know what they were doing yet, but they were starting to learn. There were multiple scants in this episode. Yeah. Like on, all on women, but they were there, and I forget, like, I I honestly only think of that costume as something that's in, in character at Farpoint and never seen again. I think it's only in the first couple of episodes that we see them on men. I think we give way too much credit to the unisex scant. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But, I mean, again, this is pretty close to the end. Like, there's only a handful mm. of episodes mm. after this one. Which, again, you can tell. You can tell that, as you say, they're getting their footing. They're not there, but they're coming. Like, you know, Picard and Crusher, I said from the beginning, they've had this sort of back and forth interesting mm. relationship going on. But, like, they're comfortable with each other. We're told in the first episode that they knew each other from long ago, mm. but we're still awkward. And, like, in Naked Now, we get this weird seduction scene, and mm, <laughs> and then there's, like, a, whole, a handful of episodes where it's like, oh, my son! And, and Picard, like, comes and is like, ah, oh, don't worry, I will parent him for you. <laughs> and then, but then in this episode, mm. they actually come across as people who have known each other a long time, but are also still awkward. Yeah. And I like that, and I think, I get why they you know, leapt out to you as, oh, this is something that I can ship right away. Absolutely. I did not see The Naked Now until I'd been a Trekkie for many, many years because I knew it would hit my embarrassment squick. And it did, but I loved it. But in between those episodes, there's also the big goodbye where they're very, very flirty and he's invited her to join him on the holodeck. <laughs> and so my headcanon is that The Naked Now kind of broke the ice they could never actually talk about it or acknowledge it or like make eye contact for a week. But that was the point where Picard realized that his feelings for Beverly or his attraction was not entirely one-sided and mm -hmm. they could sort of, you know, they, they, they realized that they could build a new relationship without Jack's ghost. And, right, and yes. Hence the big goodbye and then this and going on and on for the next seven right, years. Right, right, right. Season one of TNG is bad. Oh yeah, so bad. Like, even the good parts are bad. It is not good television. However, there are so many really fun character moments, especially for Beverly. Like, there's mm -hmm. a reason that I don't spend a lot of time in season two mm. of TNG, and I know that that's unfair, but I 100% imprinted on Dr. Crusher, and it's like, if she's not there, I don't want it. Yeah. And I get, you know, I, I was a kid. I was like a kid. Mm, mm. And I latched onto this character and then they took her away from me and and I was angry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, even though now I'm a rational adult who can like understand the whole story and the, all the context and the background mm -hmm. and, and like appreciate that she came back, but the Beverly that came back isn't the same as the Beverly that left. No, and... and I feel like there's probably like a tie-in novel or something to explain what she went through that made her... Because when she leaves, she's sort of a bit impish. She's got a really active sense of humour. And she's right. almost... She has a real sense that being out in space with her kid is really ridiculous and absurd and she loves it. And when she comes back, she's much more serious her humor is darker she's more sarcastic she's a little harder and so i have to question what happened in that year she had a desk job that changed her right exactly and was it it's... section 31 maybe that's the secret <laughs> i'm so excited to learn the secret the secret better not have to do anything with jack rusher i swear to god I... no no i will revolt Okay, okay. As head of Starfleet Medical, she learns that the Federation is doing something terrible and unethical, and she's in no has no power to stop it, so she resigns and goes back to the Enterprise. But it's at the back of her mind for years and years and years. And so after TNG, after Nemesis, she's like, finally, I think I've figured out how to do something. So she takes off for this space medicine without frontiers. And the secret that she's kept from Picard is this terrible Federation shenanigan that she's trying Wrong to stop doing. yes nice. yes i like it there are no secret children or <laughs> jack crusher is still dead wesley is still wesley <laughs> oh you know. my god yeah i cannot even imagine jack crusher is not dead like don't even maybe no. maybe her secret is that she's I been mean... cloning jack 
and that's Thomas Decker. <laughs> I've been giving myself time to come to terms with the fact that her secret is 100% going to have to do with Picard. Yeah. Because the stupid show is called Picard, and literally everyone involved in the series, mm -hmm. it's like, everything that happens is only about him. Nothing that happens is about anyone else. It's just the way that show is written. And, you know, I love Patrick Stewart, so, you know, whatever, fine. But I mean it when I say if, if this secret is like, you know, we're going to tell you who Jack Crusher was after all these years. I, no. 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 I want to know Beverly after all mm. these years. Yeah. I want to know, I agree, I want to know what happens that, you know, obviously what happened was they got different writers. <laughs> like, I understand what happens, like, from a meta view, but it's just, she, she was more important in season one than mm. she was in seasons three through seven, or, and plus the, the movies, like, mm. the, she's completely a non-entity in the movies, yeah. like, I, every time I watch those movies, I'm like angry on Gates McBadden's behalf. Yeah. The one thing, the one good thing I have to say about Nemesis is that there is a good Picard Crusher scene. It's one good scene in a very bad movie, but it's there. I can't say that. The one good thing I can say about Nemesis is the costume. Oh yeah, the costumes really are good. good costumes. Really good Romulan costumes. Yeah. Just saying. Okay. I'm going to wrap up. Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and sometimes transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, all at antimatterpod, and write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks when, for Valentine's Day, we'll be discussing our favourite romantic relationships in Star Trek. Spoilers, there'll probably be some more Picard Crusher talk. <laughs> I'm super excited. <laughs>